This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have Ashley McMillan. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yep, that's correct. Because I spelled it wrong, I noticed. <laughs> and Anya Balkhart Payne. And they're both Quakers, and Ashley attends the Dunedin monthly meeting. And she's doing a postgraduate degree at the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at Otago University, and Anya is helping young people deal with our climate and environmental crisis. And this coming week, on uh, Sunday the 3rd, Quakers are celebrating World Quaker Day because Quakers are worldwide, and we have a lot of diversity within Quakerism worldwide. And the theme will be Resilience and Hope, Drawing strength from our Quaker faith. And we are also inviting anyone interested to come to the Friends Quaker Meeting House, 15 Park Street, up from Regent Dairy, this Sunday at 10.30 for a meeting for worship. They'd like to try it out. And we'll be discussing the meaning and history of Quaker spirituality in a time of extreme environmental and social crisis and alienation. Our work on peace building and dealing with our environmental and social crisis. Anya, does Quakerism encourage and support your work with young people in helping them deal with the urgent environmental crisis we are living through? Can you talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so I grew up in a Quaker family, and I think that's the reason that I've you know, always been so drawn to the climate movement. Um, I think beyond just helping young people deal with the climate crisis, it actually helps young people deal with the climate crisis in a really intersectional climate justice focused way because of our spices, you know, simplicity, peace, integrity, equality. Um, that really helped me personally understand climate justice instead of just, you know, addressing the the causes of climate change, it helps me think about the root, um, you know, the, the real underlying problems that we have in our society. 
that have caused climate change, which I think for me makes my climate justice a lot more meaningful and helps my action a lot. And I think the, the community in Quakerism really supports me to take action as well, um, because there's just so much support and understanding in this community. And you, I believe that society is living through a, an experience of alienation from our spiritual foundations, the natural world, and from our labor or work. What do you think about alienation, and do you think it's a part of our problem? Absolutely. I think one of the fundamental causes, um, especially in the Western world, for climate change is an alienation from nature and uh, a lack of community and care for each other. And you know, as Quakers, we believe that there is that of God in everyone. And I see that to include nature as well. So that's really fundamental to my work. Ashley, do you think that George Fox and early friends, Quakers, also lived and experienced a, a time of alienation? And can you talk about who George Fox was and how he and his friends' collective experience um, change their lives and in some ways change the world yeah well i mean so george fox is sort of considered the, the founder of, of quakerism and that was happening in what i think probably was a time of real alienation in the uk it was around the time of english civil war um which was like an incredibly violent war that affected huge tracts of the of the british population and like a huge part of this conflict was around um, religion. There was big upheavals in religion going from a couple of hundred years earlier, a sort of religious monoculture of everyone being Catholic to this, the advent of Protestantism, and then huge numbers of different um, Protestant sects sort of drawing out of that. And then there was contests over who had political power, over whether there would be um, a king or if there would if there would be, be a republic. So it was this enormous time of of turmoil for the community there that Quakerism was was growing out of. And I think one of the things that, that George Fox brought to it and the early Quakers brought to it is this idea of seeing that of God in everyone um, and that idea that you didn't need to be dependent in terms of your spirituality on some sort of religious hierarchy, um, be that, you know, in the Catholic Church, or be that a hierarchy that came through the Church of England that was connected was connected to the King at that time, and I think that was an, like an incredibly radical thing to be happening to be happening at the time. And of course, we're facing a different sort of alienation and, and upheaval at the moment. But I think we're still looking at a process of needing this fundamental restructure to our society, and I think that's something that Quakerism can really contribute to because that restructure of, of society and upheaval was. was the place at which Quakerism was born. How do you think George Fox's and Quakers' religious experience helped them overcome alienation? And what led George Fox in particular to overcome it? Was he, in his youth, did he experience deep alienation? And how did he overcome this? Yeah, I mean, I should, I should start by saying, I don't know an enormous amount about Quaker history, the bits that I know are sort of bits I've mostly picked up at, at Quaker meetings and at various Quaker gatherings. <laughs> um, but I, I feel one of the things that probably made me feel more positive and hopeful for the future is that 
realization that in terms of the spiritual resources that he needed, he had within him and that to, to go forward, he needed to, to connect to that. And part of that is then connecting to the world around you. Um, and I think that would have been a source of strength in terms of moving through what's a very difficult time where there probably was not an enormous amount of stability of external things to rely on. So an approach of saying spiritually I can rely on myself and I have the resources that I need to get through this, I think is a really powerful thing. George Fox actually wandered along. I'll fill in some gaps if that's all right. Yeah, please do. <laughs> what he, in his early youth, he um, was disappointed in some of his friends and mates um, their gambling and their drinking. Not the fact they drunk, drank, but the fact they the first person who stopped drinking had to pay for the drinks. The kind of thing you sometimes find in New Zealand and other places. Mm-hmm. And, well, this was the spark, but it, he'd, I think he'd probably been alienated for some time. And he wandered around for years uh, over northern England, as far south as London. And he didn't find he was comfortable with the priests or the clergy who tried to advise him. And at some point he heard a voice saying that even Jesus Christ can speak to your condition. And that's not the exactly the language some people would use, but I think many people, including um, non-Christians, experience at times the unity and the nearness of the divine that uplifts them, and in this case, that uplifted him and helped him know that the God or the divine or the spirit wasn't just for clergy, wasn't just for people who had specific beliefs or even just through the Bible, though the Bible was important to him. And he was able to share this with other groups of seeking people that were in a similar way, they were meetings in some cases silently. One of the first groups he met was uh, organized by a woman, Elizabeth Hooten, who became an early Quaker and one of the leaders of Quakerism. Do you think that alienation is part of the problem in the modern world and collective spiritual growth or maturity be part of the solution? Can you talk about this as much as you can, both of you. Yeah, I think as Anya touched on earlier, I think our society, particularly in the West, is fundamentally alienated from the rest of the world. We have this belief that humans are somehow separate from nature and living like living out that belief is, is one of the things that has caused the climate crisis that is, um, that is catching up with us. That sense of alienation can only last so long before we have to live with the consequences. And so I think um, as like a spiritual process of realising how connected you are to the world and engaging with that is going to be a fundamental part of um, addressing the crisis of our time, particularly the, the climate crisis. Um, but yeah, I don't think we can afford to pretend that we are disconnected from the rest of the world around us anymore. <laughs> Do you think that Marx hit on part of the problem and part of the solution. Not all of it, certainly, and got some things wrong. But the idea that 
that somebody else owns our work, owns our, that we lose connection to our work and we also lose. And a way that our society is alienated because of the fact that not only our work's owned by somebody else, but um, many of us are in debt and many people can never assume that they will have security of health, housing, and other things that people actually need. That, that this is, do you think this is part of the reason for alienation? I think, I think it touches on a part of what alienation looks like. So I think that this something that comes out of alienation is this idea that you can then buy and sell anything that it's all up for sale and that's sort of where you yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's the idea that, that the properties are, it's a commodity that even human beings are a commodity in a sense or at least their work is or, or their services yeah and I think that sort of commodification of nature and saying it is something that we can use as opposed to something that we should be in a relationship with like we live in the world we don't use the world it's not it's not possible for us to actually separate our lives from it. And yet we've sort of pretended as though we can sort of try to make nature work for us rather than try to, to connect ourselves with, with the earth. Mm. Well, this is probably one of the places where some socialists got it wrong. They also thought mm. that you could make the world work for us. Mm. Um, yeah. So, how do we find a way where we collectively is it something we have to that we can do individually and make and make the world right or does it have to be a collective action I, I'm really keen to hear any things on this ultimately I think that there has to be collective action that humans are collective cre- you know, creatures we live in in societies with one another but there's this almost paradox and that the collective is made up of individuals so you can't entirely divorce individual action from collective action but mm. I'm really keen to hear Anya's thoughts yeah I think <clears throat> I think it's an interesting one um and I think what's the most interesting is that these big capitalist organizations like you know um big oil companies tweet out things like what are you going to do for the climate today or um you know governments start these programs where you can recycle on a very small scale but it doesn't necessarily go anywhere so in the climate change space we have a lot of discussions about individual change versus system change and system change i think is yeah really where it's at and it's just so ironic that we've been told that we need to recycle individually or we need to drive our cars less when in fact you know that's a very small part of the problem whereas if we all banded together and got involved at a government level or a system level we can have a much greater impact but um you know that's also really hard to do and it takes it, it takes a lot of work to organize people and for people to come together yeah it's a hard one if we organize collectively could we actually change the corporations and maybe governments i i strongly believe that we could um, but again, there's, there's not a lot of pressure on you to not recycle. Like if you decide to recycle, you can basically, you know, you can put your stuff in a bin and it goes wherever it goes, but there's a huge amount of pressure from, um, 
you know, big corporations and government and even in the community to not stand up for those kind of things on a big scale because it's against their vested interest. So, yeah, it's a real catch for me too. Do you think our individualism got in our way of living um, ethically? Sorry? Do you think in a way maybe our individualism, do your own thing, has gotten in the way of living ethically as a community? Absolutely, yeah. And I think a lot of that comes back to capitalism and the way that the West decided to set up their, you know, their hierarchies of what the, the big goal was for in life. There was a philosopher who's not a Quaker, not a Christian, uh, uh, Martin Buber, a Jewish uh, theologian and philosopher, who wrote a book called I and Thou or I and You. And he believed that to have a that we need to have a relationship wherever our environment. And he said, you could even have a relationship with trees and with with nature in a very deep sense. And if you are in a relationship, um, your actions and your feelings about those or that that you're having a relationship with, with changes. Do you think that's true? We talk about that of God in every person. Perhaps we should talk about God, that of God in everything and in nature. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that would be a profoundly important thing for our for our future in terms of changing how we how we relate to things. I think the things we have a relationship with are certainly incredibly influential. In that sense, it's hard to care for something that you don't know. Um, and I think in the West, we don't really know nature and we don't really know the environment. Um, I think we see it in very simplistic mm. terms rather than seeing just how interconnected everything, including ourselves, is. I think if we had a closer relationship with the environment, we would probably act with more reciprocity towards it. Definitely my most powerful spiritual experiences have been kind of coincidentally well not coincidentally but kind of randomly while well, I've been in the middle of the night uh, in the middle of nature um just looking around and experiencing it and that's definitely the way that I experience my version of God yeah well I'm going to play a song now probably play two songs and actually I'm going to play a song that I said I wasn't going to play I'm going to play the world turned upside down Divide the landlords, they divide the laws They were the dispossessed 
best reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said, to dig and sow We come to work the lands in common and To make the waste ground grow this earth divided We will make whole So it shall be a common treasury for all And a sin of property with two disdain any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain by theft and murder they took the lands now everywhere the walls rise up at their command they made the laws to chain us well the clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell we will not worship the Lord they serve the God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve we work we eat together we need no swords We will not bow to the masters or pay rent To the lords till we are free Though we are poor Now oh, you niggas all stand up for glory Stand up now Stand up now Stand up now The orders came They sent the hired men and troopers To wipe out the diggers' claims Tear down their cottages And destroy their corn They were dispersed But still the vision lingers on Are you poor take courage You rich take care This earth was made a common treasury For everyone to share All things in common All people want in peace, the order's kind to cut them down. Friends, we're talking with uh, Ashley Malcolm, Ashley McMillan, and um, Anya Bokhart Payne. And we were talking about Quaker spirituality at a time of crisis. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. And it will be on shortly after this, sometime this week. Well, we talked about... um, The collective issue. Um, can does silent meeting for worship in Quakers can that help draw us together toward a collective whole? Yeah, well, I certainly find for me the process of the silent meeting for worship to be very um, grounding and centering. Um, I really value having that sort of space for that conscious reflection within the week of how connected we are to um, to one another and to the world around us. So I would say in that sense again. Mm. I think the really powerful thing for me about meeting for worship is that we're all making space to experience something with each other and it doesn't need to be the same thing, but we're all together and holding space for each other. Um, obviously you can do a meeting for worship by yourself, and I sometimes do, um, but 
sitting together and holding space and um, experiencing whatever your version of spirituality is together is incredibly powerful and I think definitely draws us together. Do you think spirituality should draw us to care more for not just uh, other people in the group, but for human beings and animals, period. Um, well, I guess St. Francis was a good example of that. And maybe Buddha, too. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that spirituality can do that. Yeah. I really like the Quaker phrase of there being that of God in, in everyone. So the spiritual process being a process of recognizing that and remembering that and in, engaging with that. And as you were saying before, Marvin, I also feel that that should be extended to that of God in, in the world around us as well and in and in nature, not just something that um, that exists with humans exclusively. Um, so yeah, I think that yeah, I think spirituality can certainly serve to increase that sense of. Um, connection with, with the world. Mm. Do you ever find spirituality painful, either of you? I sometimes find when I'm in meeting for worship that the hungry or the oppressed speak to me in a very strong way and continue. And I don't always find it comfortable. I find it it's part of what it means to to be open. Yeah. In way. I think part of recognizing and being reminded of our connection with the world around us and with other people in it has to be this recognition of the fact that we do not always act as though we are connected to to the world around us and like facing up to the reality of climate change is the stark reminder of that but also looking at, at issues of, of war, poverty, of global and of global inequality and I think that can be a deeply confronting thing to face up with, particularly in the West, when like the very structure of our society is in many senses the causes of that, um, that disconnection, that that suffering that that exists, but I also think facing up to it's a really important first step in being able to address it and being able to, to change it. If we pretend that there aren't any problems there, we're never going to address them. Mm. I think one of the one of the really challenging things about being in the climate justice space or social justice space or environmental justice space more broadly is in order to be really effective you have to have a really deep and confronting look at your own privilege um, which is really painful to do I think uh, or it can be really painful to do but is so vital and I think it's that intersection between under understanding your own privilege and feeling the pain of others or the environment um, yeah it makes it really challenging but I do think that um, for me, Quakerism has been a really great space to do that in because everyone else is on a similar journey or everyone else that I've talked to has been on a similar journey. So it's been really powerful. Do you wonder if we are connected, are an integral part of the universe, the whole or holy, or could you comment on this possibility? I mean, I certainly think that humans are a part of the universe in the same sense that everything else that is is a part of it. Um, and I think, well, for me, I find the recognition of that to be a very spiritual um, a very spiritual process and a very spiritual thing, um, a thing to do. And I think we are a part of the universe and humans have value 
because of that, but we're not the only part of the universe and we're not the most important part of the universe either. <laughs> we're just a part of it. Well, when you consider the awesomeness of the universe, I mean, you're, we're quite small, but it can feel beautiful as well as awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Does it also... Do you, when you consider the, that we're all present beings and we inherit our life and inherit an amazing universe and a beautiful planet, when I mean inherit, I don't mean own. I mean when <laughs> we're, you know, it's a, but in a way, it's a gift. Could you talk about the earth and the universe's gift? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it can be seen as anything else other than other than a gift. Um, all life that, that's born is a gift. No one does anything to to earn it. It's just given. It's just something that we just something that we live with. And I think recognition that the gift of our life is just as valuable as the gift of, of lives towards others is important. I think definitely. I think that's the wonderful place that all religions and all you know people who might be atheists or um, unsure of where they stand from a spiritual point of view can agree on hopefully is that this is an incredible gift and I think sometimes we get too caught up in is that a gift from God or is that a gift from a wonderful crazy coincidence um, but it's absolutely a gift yeah if the natural world is a gift would gratitude be a positive response to that gift? And do you have obligations with, along with, or do we have obligations along with gratitude? I mean, I think gratitude is is an appropriate thing, and in part for recognizing that it's a gift and, and remembering that. But I, I think probably more important is is reciprocity and engaging with the other like other parts of the universe, the other systems, the other life forms, the other gifts um, that are around and not pretending that we are more important than them, um, I think is an incredibly important important thing to do. Mm. I think one of the things that we've gotten wrong in the West, from my point of view, is that caring for the environment has become a an option <laughs> rather than just a responsibility. Like in, if we look at indigenous cultures, caring for the environment is just what you do because that is, you know, it's part of where you live, but it's also part of your soul or, you know, your, it's just part of who you are. So it's just a responsibility that you do because, you know, otherwise you're not going to have somewhere to live. Um, and, I, yeah, I think almost the word gratitude isn't quite the right word for me because I just think it's such a responsibility that we shouldn't have... It's not really an option at this point, yeah. But isn't that our obligation? Yeah, exactly, precisely. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's different ways of looking at gifts, and I think one of the ways of looking at gifts, especially if you look at indigenous peoples and also if you look what, what Paul wrote, that actually there are obligations. You don't have to... Maybe the obligation can be 
somebody gives you something, they might not be to give something back to them and maybe pass it forward to somebody else. <gasps> or uh, looking after your part of nature, but also other parts of nature, the whole of nature. Yeah. Do you think there's any... People have often talked about humanity and nature and the environment like they were two different dual systems, and if you mm. helped one, you were neglecting the other. Uh, that's turned out to be incorrect, hasn't it? Yes, <laughs> definitely. I think we... We live on planet Earth. We don't get to um, we don't get to disconnect ourselves from everything else that's, that's on the Earth. Um, and even when you start to look into even very like basic life processes, things like how photosynthesis works, for example, you see how just interconnected everything is—not all life forms, but all the different gases in the atmosphere, the sunlight that's coming in. Um, I think it's foolish that we ever try to consider that we were somehow above or removed from all of that. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember that not everyone has decided to think like that or has been conditioned mm. to think like that. Um, you know, there are still incredible Indigenous communities who are really paving the way in the climate justice space. And it's really important that we take leadership from them because they've been doing this for a long time and they know they know how to fix this crisis we just need to uplift those voices and listen to them okay i think i might play a song about gifts
Well, friends, that was uh, Gift to be Simple, uh, a song from um, about simplicity. It was written by a collective group in uh, America called the Shakers, who were an offshoot of Quakers, who lived communally a long time ago. Now, we talk about simplicity. Is there a... Uh, link between simplicity and equality or inequality and the the difficulty with dealing with climate change and do you think that if people had if people knew that their basic health care for instance would be taken care of that they they could get as much education that as their they could intellectually cope with um, and that they would always have a home to live in. Would that make it easier for people to live simply? Um, hmm. If you knew that. In in many senses, that would be a, a simple but also a very rich life. And I think sometimes when we think of simplicity in the West, we think of something quite rather than something that in reality is is fulfilled and, and whole and in, in the west certainly we've got access to an enormous like an unfathomable range of consumer goods and things that our our ancestors even 100 200 years ago could not have imagined and yet it's certainly for many people would not be a spiritually rich life it's many people that feel incredibly isolated and lonely and disconnected and I think if, if we had a life with less, in terms of less of the, the trappings of a consumer society that we have right now, but 
but as you said, focused on on people having shelter and and, and healthcare, and and I think also focused on people having a sense of community and connection to their neighbours, then our life may seem simpler in terms of the physical things that we've got, but I think would be much richer than what many of our lives um, currently are. With a book uh, written about called the spirit level by a couple a spirit level by a couple of sociologists in Great Britain saying that societies where they had more in, more equality tended to be happier and to be less stressful and societies with a high degree of inequality and high degree of status uh, were more much more stressful and in many cases more violent yeah, I mean, certainly one of the things that come out in my research and I look at war prevention and basically how it is that wars don't happen. Um, and certainly one of the biggest, most consistent conflict risk factors is issues around inequality, both politically but also economically, when you've got real disparities of what different groups of people in society are, are able to even try and um, to try and achieve it. It's a massive risk factor. Yeah, I grew up in a society that was much less equal than New Zealand was, and I came to New Zealand partly, maybe false premises, uh, because I thought it was a more equal society. Well, I came in the 70s, and it was a much more equal society than America then, and it was equal than it is now. Uh, Why do you think governments, even so-called uh, democratic socialist governments or labor governments are so reluctant to deal with climate change and to deal with issues of inequality. I know this isn't what we came out to talk about, so you don't have to. <laughs> oh, it's sort of it's really the golden the golden question. I think there's probably lots of factors to it, and one is that dealing with climate change and structural inequality is not going to get you give you actions that you can take a photograph of to put on the front page of the paper. It's real systemic changes. And then you're going to have your success will be the things that don't happen. Um, and that's, that's quite hard to measure. I don't think that that means it's not possible um, to measure it. And one of the things I look at in my research is that we do look at the things that don't happen in other areas. So public health focuses almost entirely on the, disease outbreaks that don't happen and the accidents that don't happen and the people that don't get sick. Um, So we do have that capacity to prioritise the things that don't happen. But I think we've got to make a really conscious Mm. decision. And I think that takes a combination of Mm. society wanting it and pushing for it and politicians being willing to do things different to their predecessors Mm. um, and be willing to change how they're going to visualise and measure what they're success is you can't necessarily just take a picture of, of a road when you're looking at, at systems at systems change so i think there's probably lots of factors that, that feed into it pete hodgkin was uh, environmental minister in the first helen clark's first uh, term of office and he had a um he was going to bring in carbon taxes quite strong carbon taxes not a carbon market but carbon taxes and he said that there was not much push for the carbon taxes from anybody and that the round table and the farmers came in very strongly against it and wanted a market 
What does this mean? I think it means a, a couple of things. In one sense, I think when you put forward for submissions of what people's feedback, you're much more likely to get the, the disagreeing views, the people who think, oh, yeah, that's great, don't feel quite as motivated to, to write. And I think that's a phenomenon in Do you think some people of, have a loud, louder voices than others? Um, I think Unless they perhaps, work at it. Yeah, I think it's perhaps easier to say what you don't want. And when you don't want a carbon tax, it's very easy to to articulate. And I think there's also a sense of complacency. And I think there's been a lack of a sense of urgency around climate action. Although I do feel that since the time of Helen Clark's government, that's changed. And there's an increasing sense of urgency. And there's certainly lots of actions that could be taken. I noted there was an article, I think, on stuff recently that looked at the option of, I think they were called tradable energy quotas, which is essentially... Um, of fossil fuel rations that can then have like um, existing in decreasing amounts each year, so that we can be transforming our economy away from um, away from a fossil fuel dependence in a way that creates an urgency in a time frame that we still have some influence over, so that our more urgent sectors, for example, like hospitals and that sort of thing, get a longer transition time. So I think there's lots of ideas out there, but I think it takes a combination of a good and strong leadership from the government. And I think we've seen that from the Arden's government in response to COVID. It's been a real strong leadership, but I think it also needs um, people to be supportive of it. And I don't think you can really have one without the other. Hmm. I think that question of um, are some people's voices louder than others is a really interesting one, especially in a democratic society. Um, and I think the truth is that some people's voices actually are louder than others because, you know, some people don't have access to the kind of education that would support them to engage with this stuff. There's a huge amount of money in, um, you know, uh, you know, big industries that don't want us to see climate reforms. And I think there's a really interesting... Um, in Australia, there was a very, very interesting gun reform um, and I think there's a really interesting comparison between what happened then and what's happening now with uh, the climate justice fight. Um, and basically, uh, in Australia, obviously, they completely reformed all their gun, gun laws and the government just decided that they have to do it despite all the pushback. And those people that pushed so hard for that didn't get back into politics. So, you know, they, they pushed for these reforms really hard. It was incredible. Um, and then they never got in again. And I think that's the kind of leadership we need from our government is for them to decide that this is so important that they just need to get it done. And unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing the Labour government kind of um, take the easy route on the climate justice side at the moment. Um, what can we do as... The society. I'm not talking about the government, and I'm not talking about recycling. What can we do to change the way governments and corporations respond? I think one of the things that we can do is change our expectations of the world, change what we think it should look like to have a world that is a life that is good and comfortable, um, and change our expectations that things will keep growing forever um 
because I think those that those expectations that we have of the world are embedded into our corporations, are embedded into our governance, they're embedded into how we view our personal lives. And ultimately, these, these corporations are made up of people that we, we share society with. It's not an entirely disconnected from us. So I think changing that, that attitude, that expectation is, is a really important thing that, that we can do. And I think that would also support us to not feel frightened of, of the future. And the future, regardless of what it is, is going to be different from the present. That it's, that's always the case. And I think if we changed our expectations, what a good future would look like, we wouldn't be so fearful of having climate reform to try and influence it. Do you think that having a belief or faith that the universe is a, a good place, even a moral place like Martin Luther King talked about, and he talked about that knowing he would probably be assassinated in spite of knowing what would probably happen. He still talked about that, that the arc of the universe was toward morality and toward life. Do you think that can help us live through the difficult times? I think one of the key things that is able to help us with is not being complacent. I think sometimes a belief that the world is just a really dark, um, terrible place. So, hope and optimism are different, aren't they? Used yeah. as an excuse for not yeah, doing it. They do, oh, well, life's not fair. So, some people use that. Um, I see it with ideas that was inevitable. <laughs> yeah. So, I think I cut out for a moment there. I think I'm back. Okay. Do you think that um, hope and optimism are two different things? They're both good things, but are they different? Can you have hope when you're not optimistic, for instance? When you're yeah. not optimistic of the short-term future, what's going to happen or happening? I, I think so. It's quite a tricky question. I think hope is more your attitude around what is possible in the world and how things could be. I think optimism we tend to use as a prediction in the sense that, oh, things will be good. Whereas hope, you know that things might not be good, but you know that there is the possibility in the world that they could be. And so I think that's a more powerful driver. Okay, how would you like to see the Religious Society of Friends Quakers grow? I mean, I'm supposing you wouldn't, wouldn't mind if they grow. And how would, and become more diverse? And how would you see this happening? Mm. Do you think society may be coming to a place where this kind of spirituality is not only a good thing, but more more likely? I feel that more people in the West are coming to recognition of the importance of spirituality. I think in other cultures around the world, that's not necessarily been in question, but I think it has been in the West for a while. I think one of the key things I'd want to see the um, Quakers do is to engage more in the world around them. I also think that's something that Quakers do incredibly well. I think they take their faith seriously and wish to, to act on it in the world and have done some very impressive um, things, both collectively as well as individual Quakers, particularly I see it in relation to peace work and you see it 
the in environmental work as well. But I would love to see more of it and to see that that figure because I for me that's how I came across Quakers and how I first started to to engage with them was through how they are living out their faith in the world. Mm. I think that's a really interesting question because at least in my friends around me and I think you know statistically we see that the number of people in organized religion is falling rapidly at least in the west um but I think the number of my friends that would identify as spiritual in some way um but not necessarily as part of a collective group is quite high and I think that's actually rising um but I think the real asset that Quakerism has for me and why I really enjoy being a Quaker is that there aren't set boundaries or guidelines about what you have to do to be a Quaker. Um, when I describe it to my friends, it's kind of like, yeah, we're a spiritual group of people um, and you just have to try hard to be a good person. It's basically my, my catchphrase for Quakerism. Um, so, yeah, I think there is potential for Quakerism to grow just because it allows so many interpretations of, um, you know, what is spirituality, but it provides that community. And I think on that diversity issue, that's a really tricky one because I think basically Quakerism just needs to be more open and more understanding about um, different points of view, which I think is something that we've worked really hard on for a long time and you know, possibly are a little bit ahead of some other religious organisations, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and I think part of that is acknowledging things that we've done wrong in the past. You know, um, Quakers were involved in slavery um, and that's something we need to talk about. Quakers were, you know, maybe involved in colonisation here. That's something we're looking into. Um, yeah, so acknowledging what's happened in the past and working to actually address that, not just sweep that under the rug. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for being part of this discussion. I really enjoyed having you as part of the discussion. It's been good. You can, uh, as I said before, you can podcast us by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community Chaos. And if you're interested in visiting friends, why next um, Sunday is... Uh, World Quaker Day, and as on any Sunday, anybody's welcome to come in and try out um, a Quaker meeting for worship at uh, 15 Park Street. Thanks a lot, friends. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.